right, if you will, take your Bibles and turn with me this morning to the book of 1 John, chapter number 1. 1 John, chapter number 1. We began our series in 1 John on last Sunday, looking at verses 1 through 4 of this uh, little letter. We talked last week at length about the coming of Christ in the flesh. There's a great deal of precision about which Jesus is spoken of here in verses 1 through 4. He came in the flesh. John said, we looked upon him. We beheld him. He was made manifest. That eternal life that was with the Father in the foundation of the world came and dwelt in our midst, in the flesh. We looked upon him. We heard him with our ears. We saw him with our eyes. We touched him with our hands. God has come down and dwelt among us. Chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, last week's text ended this way in verse 4. We are writing these things so that our joy or your joy may be made complete. So he sets out at the beginning that one of the goals of this letter is to ensure that your joy is filled up in Jesus. Now, where we go in verse 5 may seem like a bit of an awkward transition, but there's a reason uh, as to why we go here in verse 5, where John immediately turns his attention to the perfect righteousness of God who is in heaven. If you found your way there to 1 John chapter 1, beginning in verse 5, let's stand together out of respect and honor for the reading of God's word. 1 John chapter 1, beginning in verse 5, John the apostle writing under the inspiration of God's Holy Spirit. Now this is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light, and there is absolutely no darkness in him. If we say we have fellowship with him, yet we walk in darkness, we are lying and not practicing the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin... We are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If, however, we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we don't have any sin, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Chapter 2, verse 1 says, My little children, I'm writing you these things so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for those of the whole world. May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of his word. You may be seated. We pointed out that we're transitioning away from verse 4 into verse 5. Verse 4 reading, we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Verse 5 says, now this is the message we have heard from him and declare to you, God is light and there is absolutely no darkness in him. If I were to say to you, I want to talk to you this morning about the attributes of God that supplement or secure or encourage your joy, what attributes of God's character might that call to mind for you? You might think of our talking about 
the compassion of God. You might think of our talking about the mercies of God. If our concern is to, to give joy and encouragement to the people, how might we talk of God's character? We might talk of God's love, of his mercy, of his grace, of the abundant life that we find in him. But here John talks first about the perfect righteousness of God. This is the starting point. It's the perfect righteousness of God that makes every other attribute of God's character go. That there's no change in him. There's no variation, no shadow of turning. He is holy, holy, holy. It's the holiness of God's grace that makes it amazing. It's the holiness of God's love that distinguishes his love from every other form of love. It's the perfect righteousness of his justice that sets it apart from any other form or expression of justice. When it comes to our joy, we can find joy in the reality that there is no darkness whatsoever in the God we serve. He is himself light and light absolute. Verse 5 says, now this is the message we have heard from him and declare to you, God is light and there is absolutely no darkness in him. It, it may sound a little clumsy here to stress the fact that this comes at the front of our passage and it comes off a little clumsily from my perspective, but I, I want to pause again for a moment and note how critically important this is that we start at the right place. Because most of the time when it comes to asking the hard questions of life that relate to our personal joy and the character of God, we start in all the wrong places. If we're asking, for instance, questions as to why things happen the way they do in this world, we ask why bad things happen to good people. You see, we start with us Rather than starting where John begins, which is with the presupposition that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. When you begin at that place, other things begin to find their spots. God is light, that is, he is righteous, and in him there is no unrighteousness whatsoever. We don't impose our ideas about morality, values, good and evil on God. God is himself the perfect embodiment of what is right. He is perfect in his righteousness. If he moves, you can safely assume that he has made a good, healthy, and moral move because God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. Verse 6 begins the first of three contrasts in our passage, John addressing a number of issues within the church before him. He says in verse 6, if we say we have fellowship with him, yet we walk in darkness, we are lying and not practicing the truth. John notes very plainly here that you cannot have fellowship with God while walking in darkness. Again, verse 6 says, if you say, we have fellowship or I have fellowship with God, yet I walk in darkness, you are lying and not practicing the truth. John is observing what we have experienced in our own day and age. 
that, that sometimes the confession of our mouth does not align itself with the practice of our hearts. John says it is entirely possible for us to say the right things with our mouth while doing all the wrong things by expression. Now, it is not that we win merit or favor with God by the things that we do. It is that when we really believe in our heart of hearts that Jesus is the Lord of lords and we enjoy fellowship with him, that has bearing on the way we live our life. Sometimes we think that this is a modern-day issue, that people say one thing and they do another, but we see this all over the New Testament. There's a wrestling with this idea of people saying one thing but doing something that is entirely different. If you look at, at the book of Romans in chapter number 10, that passage that we often go to in walking through the Roman road, where the Apostle Paul says, if we believe in our heart unto righteousness and we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, we shall be saved. What is the language of that text about? If we believe in our heart unto righteousness and we confess with our mouth, Paul is saying in first century language, if what we say with our mouth is consistent with what we believe in our heart, and our confession is that Jesus is Lord, then all who call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's what Paul's saying there, and that's what John is saying here. That you can say the right thing with your mouth while believing something that is entirely different in our heart of hearts. Church folks, if we're honest with ourselves, there's a lot of instances when our walk doesn't line itself up with our talk. If we really believe the things we say we believe, they have direct bearing on the way we live our life. If we really believe that heaven is good and hell is hot and Jesus is Lord and the only hope of escaping eternity in hell will be pressed to go, there'll be an urgency about our gospel proclamation. If we really believe these truths in our heart of hearts, if we really believe that what awaits us in Jesus on the other side by faith in him and by the grace of God, we'll live as though this world is fleeting and passing away, not as though our existence hangs on the possession of the next good thing. If we really believe what we say we believe about the person and the finished work of Jesus Christ, it has great bearing on the way we live our life. You cannot walk with him in the light while doing the deeds of darkness. John says, make no mistake, you cannot have fellowship with God while walking in darkness. Verse 7, the Bible says, if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. This is the contrast to saying we have fellowship but walking in darkness. When we in reality are walking in the light, it is in the light that we have fellowship with God in whom is light, who is light, and in whom there is no darkness whatsoever. If we walk with him in the light, we have fellowship with God, John says. If we walk with him in the light, we have fellowship with one another, John says. If we walk with him in the light, the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. Now, people struggle with 1 John because John speaks in such black and white terms. 
John will say a, a moment from now, if we, if we say that we have no sin, we're a liar and the truth is not in us. But he goes on to say the contrast later on, noting that if we're in fellowship with God, we have no sin or we do not sin. Now, he doesn't mean that in as rigid a literal way as it's communicated oftentimes, often out of its context. What he means there is just what we've been reinforcing here, that when we walk with God, we must necessarily walk in the light. He's not saying that we walk free from sin. He's saying that we walk in the light. That is laboring through sanctification. There is a great deal of difference between living in the darkness and living in the light. Living in the light does not mean that we walk in this experience here on earth free from sin. It simply means we walk with a different perspective. We walk with a different worldview. We walk with the leadership of the Holy Spirit still stumbling and struggling to pursue the face of Jesus, to be brought into conformity with the likeness and image of God's only Son. But we are still very much, much in this experience touched by the presence of, of sin. John says when we walk in the light, y'all track with me here, when we walk in the light, we have fellowship with God, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us in the light from all sin. That is, walking in the light has a sanctifying effect in our life. It is necessary that we walk in the light to be in the light and in fellowship with the Father. But as we are in the light, it has a purifying, sanctifying effect on our life. John says, if you say you have fellowship with him and you walk in darkness, you're a liar and there's no truth in you. But on the other hand, if you walk in the light as he is in the light, there is fellowship with God. There is fellowship with the church. And the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all our sin. There's a second contrast here beginning in verse number 8. John says, if we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. I, I think in its context, what John is speaking of here, and maybe this will make more sense in a few moments when we see the next contrast, the third contrast John offers, that he's speaking specifically here in verse 8 of present-day sin. If we say, John says, we have no sin at the moment, is how I understand his uh, message here, then we are a liar and we're not practicing the truth. The truth is not in us. You have sin in your life right now that must be confessed. Right now, today, this morning, you have sin in your life. I, I can remember um, about a year or so after coming to faith in Jesus and I had a very faithful accountability partner who was the youth pastor in our rural church and uh, we were riding along. I could take you to the place we were we were preparing to make a turn off of Mabin Sturgis Road onto Self Creek Road. There, there aren't two people in this church that know where in the world that is. And I can remember looking to Jonathan and I said, Jonathan, you know, I think I pretty well have all of the big sins dealt with in my life now. And I have looked back at that moment and how stupid that must have sounded to Jonathan on that day. And, 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 I've, and I've tried to process how I might have come to such a conclusion I was a very immature new believer and understandably not knowing a lot of things about the gospel and the nature of my own sin 
the, the, the problem was a lack of understanding of the perfect righteousness of God and a failed understanding of the depth of my own personal depravity. John seems to be taking this issue on here in the text. As a believer, now listen to me carefully, and I think this is a real issue for church folks. You may be here this morning having been a follower of Jesus for 10, 20, 40, 50, 60, 80 years. So long as you're drawing earthly breath, there is sin in your life that needs to be confessed, and there is sanctification in your life that is yet to be done. Somewhere along the way, for the Western church, it has fallen out of vogue. It is no longer fashionable to talk about the call of God to personal holiness. But I am convinced and have been for some years now that what we need as the Western church, what the American church needs now more than ever before, is a good, old-fashioned, Holy Ghost conviction of sin that brings us to tears for our acts of unrighteousness, that drives us to our knees at the thought of our sin and the perfect holiness of our God. Right now, in this moment, every soul gathered here is a sinner, not just by virtue of things that you've done in your past, not just as a consequence of your sinful nature, but you are a sinner by choice in this very moment. And those sins need be confessed before the Father if we are to enjoy the kind of fellowship He intends for us with Him walking together in the light. If you say you don't have sin at this present hour, John says, then you lie and the truth is not in you. John goes further with the next contrast, but for now we need to see the positive. If it is true, as John says in verse 8, if we say we have no sin in the present hour, we're deceiving ourselves. What is the point of contrast? What is at opposite of this? In verse 9 he says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. On the one hand, you may deny that you have sin in your life at the present hour, but on the other hand, you may come to a good and faithful God who promises at our confession of sin to forgive us and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. You need only confess your sin. Confessing sin is not just about speaking our sins publicly acknowledging the deeds that we have done. Confession is the idea of being brought into conformity with the opinion of the one to whom we confess. When we confess our sin to God, not only do we confess the fact that we have transgressed the law of God, we confess that the law of God is good. And we plead in that moment for the power and the ability to bring our lives into conformity with the standard God has set forth for us. Aren't you glad for this promise? That when we confess our sin before God, that through the blood of Jesus, he is faithful and he is just to forgive us and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Look now at verse 10. This is the third of those contrasts we mentioned a moment ago. Are you picking the, these up in your text? 
Each begins with if we say. Verse 6 begins if we say. Verse 8 begins if we say. And now verse 10 says, if we say we don't have any sin, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Now, I said a moment ago that I believe in verse 8, John is speaking of the idea that we don't have, or the, the false, deceitful confession is, we don't have sin at the present hour. But the tense change here in verse 10 suggests that what John is describing is a scenario in which people say, well, I don't have a sin problem at all. Not, not only do I not have an issue with sin at the present hour, I, I've never really had a problem with sin in general. There's never been a time for me when I needed to ask for forgiveness because I've never really done anything that was wrong. John presses here that mankind is thoroughly sinful and only the blood of Jesus can cleanse us from our sin. I said a moment ago it's become less than fashionable to talk about the call to personal holiness, but in reality it's become less than fashionable to talk about sin in general. Ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters, hear me carefully. It may be out of fashion to talk about sin, but it is a very real and present danger in my life and in yours. Whether we like the archaic language of sin or not, there can be no debating the reality that sin has invaded your heart, that it has overwhelmed your life, that you are reaping on a moment-by-moment basis the consequences of a dreadfully sinful nature and in many instances the consequences of the outward sinful actions of your body. You are a sinner by birth, You are a sinner by choice, and the only thing that can change the course of your destiny is the blood of Jesus Christ. John says, if we say we don't have any sin, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. The severity of this denial is deeper than the two former. But before, there was the idea that we have fellowship, but we're walking in darkness. And the reality is that there are seasons in our life when we may be backslidden and out of fellowship with God. We may be out of sorts and out of sync, but there's a degree, a level of understanding of the gospel. In the second instance, there was the confusion of a young believer, perhaps, who said, I don't have sin at the present hour. I'm pressing through some things and experiencing victory in Jesus. But here, the denial of sin in general sets one outside the kingdom of God, apart from coming to your senses and understanding that only the blood of Jesus can atone for your sin. There is no place for you in the kingdom of God. If you say you don't have any sin, You make him a liar, that is, God a liar, and his word is not in you. Now, the positive contrast to this deception spoken of in verse 10 comes in chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. And it's rich, and it's refreshing, and it is the gospel. John says, my little children... I'm writing you these things so that you may not sin. In other words, John says, one of my motives in writing this letter is to say to you, flee from sin. That you be kept from, that you be protected from the presence of sin in your life. I'm writing to you about grace so that you may not sin. A couple of weeks ago, 
Um, we were closing out a, a few weeks ago, closing out our study in the book of Exodus. And that, that message was all about grace. It was just about grace, just grace, grace, grace. And we were looking at that golden calf incident in the book of Exodus, and it comes right in the middle of this long legal section. And we talked about how that legal section emphasized the need for grace in our life. Here's, here was, this, was, this was the interesting observation of the pastor in that morning's response. Most of the responses to the holding forth of God's grace were responses that were driven by a desire to flee from or to make confession of sin. Isn't it interesting how that works? John says, I'm writing to you about grace so that you may not sin. You would think that grace would give us license or liberty to sin. But somewhere, even deep down in our dark little depraved hearts, we know that it's the grace of God that compels us to walk faithfully and obediently before him. My little children, John says, in such an endearing way, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But here's what I want you to know. If anyone does sin, and, and they do, and you will, we have an advocate with the Father. You know what an advocate is? In contemporary language, an advocate is like a defense attorney. He's there to plead our case. He's there to argue on our behalf. When Satan stands before the eternal judge and hurls accusations against our character, there is one there to advocate for us, and his name is Jesus Christ. In fact, John describes him as Jesus Christ, the righteous one. And he has unique standing in the court because not only is he our advocate, our defense attorney, the Bible tells us that he's also the judge for all authority in heaven and on earth has been given unto him. Furthermore, he happens to be the very basis for our standing of innocence, righteousness, blamelessness, and holiness in the court because his plea is really not about our conduct. His plea is not about deeds that we have done. His plea is rooted in what he has done perfectly, finally, and forever at the cross. Verse 2 says, He himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. The language of propitiation is about satisfying the wrath of God against us. That's what propitiation means. That Jesus drank the bitter cup of God's judgment against us at the cross. That is propitiation. And Jesus stands as our advocate before his court and says, Judge, I have satisfied the penalty for this individual's sin. This person stands righteous. This person stands blameless. This person stands holy, not because of things that they have done, but because of what I have done. The penalty for their crime has already been paid. Jesus bears the scars of our sin debt. Jesus wore our propitiation at Calvary and walked out of the tomb but three days later that he might stand to be our eternal advocate, our great high priest pleading the sufficiency of his blood over our sin forever that we might have standing with 
the Father. Verse 2 says, He Himself is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. Just a single drop of Jesus' sinless blood is sufficient to atone for the sin of the whole world. Brothers and sisters, I don't know what you've done, where you came from, what your background is, but I know that regardless of what baggage you bring to the tree, that your sin is no match for the power of the blood of Jesus Christ. I know beyond a shadow of a doubt, because the Bible tells me so, that if you will come to Jesus this morning, confess your sin before him, acknowledge that he is Lord and Lord of all, begin a journey walking with him in the light, I know that you'll have fellowship with the Father. I know that you'll have fellowship with the church. I know that the blood of Jesus Christ will cleanse you of all unrighteousness. And I know that there's a place for you in heaven. Would you come to him this morning? Ladies and gentlemen, this is the gospel. If there were ever a passage that set forth the promise of the gospel, it is 1 John 5, 1, 5 through 2, 2. This is it. That we are a dreadfully sinful people. If you come this morning, if you're a guest this morning, and you're wondering, what is the message of Christianity? What do these people believe that distinguishes them from all other uh, faith expressions in the world? This is it. That we are a dreadfully sinful people, and only the blood of Jesus can make us right with God. This is the gospel. This is the Christian message. And it's not just the message that begins our journey with Jesus. It's the message that sustains us every hour. At the beginning of your faith walk, you know what the call of the gospel said, repent and believe. And do you know what God says to those of you 50, 60, 70, 80, 90 years into your journey with Jesus this morning? He says, repent and believe. It is the gospel that saved us in the beginning. It's the gospel that sustains us along the way. And when all is said and done and our sojourn on earth is complete, it will be the gospel of Jesus Christ that glorifies us in the presence of the one who died for us. Aren't you glad this morning for the shed blood of the righteous one, Jesus Christ?